Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Hear now God's word. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And the windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah! His word is good. Yeah! Hallelujah! His word is good. Thanks, Paul. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. If you're new, uh, my name is Jeff. I get to serve on staff here at the church. Grateful to be with you this morning. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. We're in a series called Engaging with Jesus. And I want to tell you about a story and an experience I had where I thought I was going to be engaging with Jesus face-to-face very shortly. Um, September 2002, a a couple buddies and I spent two months surfing in Costa Rica. And I woke one morning in this place called Santa Teresa. We had rented a house for 10 bucks a night right next to the beach. And I woke up, looked out, and it was majestic. It was like a magazine. Massive waves peeling down the line something you'd see in Hawaii. And I got so excited. I was like, I'm getting barreled today. That had never happened to me. But we got pumped, grabbed boards, and just headed out. And this was probably at this time, six to eight feet. By the time we got out there, it rose up to eight to 10, even 10 to 12 feet. The surf got really big. Now, I should add a little context that I was pretty new to surfing at this point. Okay, I started surfing when I moved to Colorado in my early 20s because we skied a lot. And so we figured, well, when we go on vacation, let's learn to surf. So we went to Hawaii, went to Florida, went to California. And then we ended on this um, long trip to Costa Rica. And we were about a month into the trip. So I had spent hours and hours a day paddling, 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 learning to surf, surfing these really fun waves in Costa Rica. So I was strong and I could paddle, but I had never been in surf this big. But we get out beyond the waves, and we're sitting out there, my friend Hayes and I, and we are going up and down as these big swells come in. And you, you see, when you see a wave up close, if you've never surfed, it is kind of terrifying. And they would come up, and we'd go up, and we sat out there for 30 minutes and did nothing. And finally, Hayes goes, all right, rock, paper, scissors, losers got to go. And I was like, fine. And I knew, without a doubt, I was going to lose. And so I lose the rock, paper, scissors, and I go to paddle into this wave. Now, in a set, 
Waves come in sets, usually three to five waves in a set, and then there'll be a little break. And I go and I start paddling the first wave of the set, mistake number one, okay? So I'm paddle, paddle, paddle. Remember, I'm really strong paddling at this point. Paddle, paddle. I, get, I feel the board catch the wave, and I put my hands down to get up, and I look down, and I'm not kidding. It looked like I was looking down a two-story building. And I was like, nope. And I pull back. You think disaster's been averted. I look behind me, and there's another one that big that's crashing about five feet in front of me. And it hits, and I go, boom, I get thrown down into the water. You're in what's called the washing machine. I am being tossed this way and that. There is nothing I can do as this wave has me. So I know enough to know, relax. You got to chill. So I'm relaxed. It's got me. Finally, what feels like an eternity, it kind of lets me go. And I, I pop up. The, the foam is like this big on the water now because of how hard these waves are hitting. And I come out of the foam and, and I'm out of breath and I look back and another one is coming right down on my head. Try to get a breath, boom, down again. This one pushes me even deeper. And now I'm like, I'm running out of air. And my feet are face up, my head is down. And on a surfing, you have a leash on your ankle. And the leash was pulling up, the board was probably bobbing in the water like this. And I got to the place where I was like, there's nothing else I can do. I grabbed the leash and I start walking it up, up to the surface. And I pop up knowing that if there's another wave that's about to hit my head, I'm going to be in serious danger. Thankfully, that wave had pushed me far enough in that the next wave was further out. It hit me, but not with as much force. And it pushed me out, and I ended up staggering onto the beach, and I fell down, kind of choking, gagging, and gasping for air. And I laid there for about 20 minutes just breathing. It was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life and a moment that I'll never forget. Um, I do want to apologize for all of you that have thought surfing sounds fun, and I just ended that for you. But I wanted us to feel that this morning. I wanted us to kind of feel that experience, because as we think about this passage and we put ourselves in the position of the disciples, what would it like to be on, to be on that boat and those waves crashing and hitting us, thinking that, man, we are going to go down. I wanted us to feel that in our bones, in our heart, how they must have been feeling in that moment. But before we dive in, no pun intended, we're going to look at two quick points today. If you're taking notes, the first one is uh, faith in the storm. And the second one, and it kind of builds, faith in the storm is dependent upon knowing the storm maker. So faith in the storm and knowing the storm maker. So one day Jesus said to the disciples, and this is a little bit of a different translation, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Now when Jesus says, let us go over to the lake, other side of the lake, we need to understand what he means by lake. He's not talking about Lake Dixon or Lake Hodges. Okay? This is what's known as the Sea of Galilee. It was 13 miles long, five miles wide. So it's a pretty big lake. And what's also interesting about the Sea of Galilee is it sits 700 feet below sea level. It's the second lowest lake in the world behind the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea being a saltwater lake in that same region, Sea of Galilee being a freshwater lake. Um, Ken Hughes, who's a theologian, he writes uh, about the lake. 
that it's surrounded by imposing mountains, gouged with deep ravines. These ravines serve as gigantic funnels that bring winds whirling down upon the lake without notice. These gales are often strengthened by the thermal buildup in the extremely low valley that sucks the cold air violently downward. So what happens often in this region is the cold air gets sucked down through the mountains. It meets with this warm air that's coming off the lake and creates a very dangerous weather pattern where storms can pop up quickly out of nowhere. It's not like they set off from the shore going, I see a storm approaching. It would have looked clear and they got out in the middle of the lake and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, boom, this big squall hits. I uh, was reading in a, a Bible atlas and this author who had experienced one of these squalls He writes that in a few moments, the air was thick with mist through which one could hear the roar of tortured water. Misty, you can't see anything, but waves are hitting you and the sea feels like it's just come alive. Unbeknownst to the disciples at this time, um, this moment, this horrific storm was gonna become a very real lesson to teach them about God, his power, and the faith required to follow him. This moment would prove to be an important step in their spiritual development. But this was not the mindset of the disciples in this moment. They weren't going, man, this is amazing. We're going to really learn a lot from this experience. Right? They what? They freak out. The storm kicks up. It's terrifying. It's deadly. If you've ever been caught in a hurricane or a tornado or a storm, or a really huge wave, or you're stuck in a, a river that's flowing really quickly, you know it is a terrifying experience. It's terrifying because storms are relentless. They don't care how you're doing. They don't care how you're feeling. They don't care what you're going through at that moment. They are going to relentlessly pound you. And the relentlessness of the storm leads to helplessness of the one who's in the middle of it. The relentlessness of the storm is overwhelming, and we feel nothing but helplessness. When I was held down in those waves in Costa Rica, there was nothing I could do. I, I could not fight against that wave. I had to let it take me, and as soon as it let me up, that's, that's when I got up, nothing else. Uh, shortly after that, this is going to sound ridiculous, but we ended up in New Zealand after this on another, it's good to be in your early 20s, but we ended up in New Zealand and we're surfing this wave that has really bad tides and I fell in another wave and I was caught in this river that was going into shore. Literally, my, my hands were pinned on my side against the sand bottom being drug in and I popped up and was like, when it let me go and I was like, whoa, and then I went back out because I am an idiot, which is if you take anything from this sermon today, The relentlessness of the storm creates helplessness in our own lives. So they wake Jesus and they say, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Daryl Bach, in his commentary, he writes this. He says, the storms of today, if if we put this in our own lives, the storms of today can arrive in a rush of circumstances beyond our control. The point of connection is not in the precise situation the disciples faced in the boat. 
but in the feeling of helplessness they have about where Jesus has led them. They've been following Jesus. He puts them in this boat. He takes them out to the middle of the lake. And this storm picks up, and they go, Master, we're going to drown. You can imagine them saying, Jesus, why did you take us across the lake? Maybe you've had similar thoughts in your own life. God, why is this happening to me? Where are you right now? Why this? Why now? Gordon Lightfoot, he poetically writes this. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes into hours? Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes into hours? I don't know about you, but I can kind of feel that in my heart, in my soul. How do we trust God through painful, hard, confusing, and helpless times in our life? Jesus is actually going to give us an answer to that. He's going to answer the disciples in the form of a question. He doesn't say, though, toughen up. He doesn't say, hey, let's be positive about this situation. Think of all the blessings in your life. He also doesn't say, man, you really should have listened to me when I recommended swimming lessons earlier. Right? Jesus turns to them, and what does he say? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? This is a crucial question for all of us who are seeking, who are committed, who are trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus through this life. Where is our faith? Now, it was right for the disciples to go to Jesus with their fear. They should have turned to him. But what they lacked was the faith and trust that he would protect them. How do you think that Jesus would have responded had they said, Master, Master, we feel like we're going to drown, but we trust that you will protect us. But they don't. They wake him in fear. And in 24b, he gets up. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The The storm subsided and all was calm. And then he asked them, where is your faith? Isn't it ironic that it's the disciples that wake Jesus and not the storm that's raging around him? How was he asleep? He obviously came from an exhausting day of ministry. If you read back in the chapters before, he is healing people. He is ministering to lots of people. He was utterly exhausted, and he gets on this boat, and he falls asleep, and this storm pops up in an instant. I also think it's kind of a beautiful picture of the perfect human who's ever lived, Jesus, sleeping in the middle of a storm because his soul is at ease. He's not weighed down by sin, fear, shame, worry. He is at peace with who he is. But if I'm also honest, it's also a little troubling. Why doesn't he wake up and save the disciples? When storms come into our life, why doesn't he immediately end them? Have you ever thought that? Like, can you just get me out of this situation? Fix it. Heal it. Why did this have to happen in the first place? These are big questions without easy answers. But let me offer a couple suggestions here. The first being that through all of this, and as we unpack this, I do believe Jesus is the best and only option in our life. Let me 
explain a little bit. He says, Jesus says in John 16, 34, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is gonna acknowledge here that we will have trouble in our life. It is unavoidable. It is a reality for every single person in this world. But as a Christian, we also understand and know that we live with the reality that Jesus is in control. He has overcome the world. We are his creation. We'll talk about Jesus as creator in a minute. But it is not our job to rush him. It's not our job to rush God. As hard as it's, it sounds, God sees the forest. We see what? The trees. He knows what's best for his kingdom. He knows what's best for his people. We live in this reality that there are sorrows and there are hardships, but that Jesus is in control. And we are not alone. It's one of the key messages of Christianity is that you are not alone. Where is your faith? Faith as in something that you have. You can take it out. You can use it. It's been something that has been given to you. Tim Keller says that faith is applying what you know about Jesus. Faith is applying what you know about Jesus. I would encourage you to write that down. It's not an emotion or a feeling. It's not something God has given us that we can take out. It is something that God has given us that we can take out, we can use. This is the key to overcoming storms, faith. And if faith is applying what we know about Jesus, the question we should ask, and it's the one the disciples ask, is who is he? In other words, like, if I'm going to use faith in this person, who is it that I'm putting my faith into? So point two, let's move on, knowing the storm maker. In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. The disciples would have known, because they would have known from the Old Testament scriptures, who controlled the waves and the wind. This is another one of Jesus' little clues he gives us about who he is, about his identity. Consider these verses from Psalms, Psalms 89.9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 65, 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas? The roaring of their waves. And think about Psalm 107. Think about it as, as we consider this passage, as the disciples reflect on their engagement with Jesus. Psalm 107, 28 to 30. Incredible passages. says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. They were glad that the waters were quiet. I do not think, given all the miracles they had seen Jesus perform up to this point, that the tone of their question, the question of who is this, is an innocent confusion about his identity. I think at this moment, another puzzle piece falls into place for them. Another clue is given. I think they are beginning to understand the depth of this man they are following. In other words, not 
who is this? But, but more of a, who is this? Who is this man? Ken Hughes writes that the disciples knew that Jehovah could still the seas by, the word, by his word alone. Logic demands, therefore, that Jesus must be the creator God. The disciples' understanding of Christ suddenly shot right out of the universe. Jesus must be the creator God. So who is this? Who is Jesus? It is central to understanding Christianity. If you are new to Christianity, you're exploring faith. Maybe you've heard about Jesus. Maybe you think he's a great prophet among the lights of of Buddha or Muhammad or whoever it is that people follow. Let me give a couple verses that give light to who Jesus actually is. Who is this man that can calm a storm with just his voice? John 1, 1 through 3 says this, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word being Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16 to 17, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the creator God. But he's also fully man, sleeping in a boat because he was exhausted. Here's two two reasons why I think this is really crucial to understanding our faith, to understanding Christianity, and understanding who God is. Um, First, this section of Scripture, 8, 22 to 56, has four miracles back to back to back to back. Here are the four miracles. The calming of the storm, exercising a demon from a possessed man, Jesus heals a woman who is bleeding, and he raises a child from the dead. So what does the Gospel of Luke tell us about Jesus in this section? Number one, that he's come to establish his authority and his kingdom on earth. And in doing so, he has command over what? The natural elements, the wind and the waves. He has command and control over and full spiritual authority over the spiritual realm. He can heal physical ailments, and he can even raise people from the dead He rules it all. We have a king. When we read this passage and we consider storms in our own life, it is natural to go there and it's appropriate to go there. And it's hard and challenging and it's helpful and we need to do it. But we also need to recognize in this passage, this is not just about us. This is about Jesus coming proclaiming, here's who I am. I am a king and I am establishing my kingdom in this world. we have a king. Number two, Christians are not alone in desiring meaning during the storms of life. This is why it's important to know who Jesus is. Every person of every faith has to reconcile their worldview when life gets very hard, even people that would deny faith. How do you explain hardship and suffering and pain and death? 
Every religious leader, prophet, self-help guru, and CrossFit coach has to try and answer the question, why is this happening to me? I think about this fam- the famous saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. Life comes crashing down when it is curated to avoid all pain and suffering. This is what our culture is training us to do. Avoid it, medicate it, proactively work to prevent it, or cast blame elsewhere when it's happening. Christianity is the only religion, only faith, only worldview that presses into a God who is not only with us in the storms of life, but also willingly entered into the most horrific suffering ever endured. That is on the cross. He knows our pain. Jesus' kingdom that he came to establish was fully established through the cross. When he took our sin, when he died the death we deserved. But he's also human. That's what I love about Jesus. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his death, he cries out to God in a similar way that the disciples did. He says, please take this cup from me. Please, if there's any other way, please, God, save me. But, but your will, not mine, be done. In other words, save me, but I trust you fully. Jesus said this long before you and I ever did. Help. Save me, but I trust you. N.T. Wright, he writes that we will only give the right answer to the question of who Jesus is when we realize that to give it commits us to total trust and obedience. That when we say, save me, it is in total trust with the outcome. Total trust with who God is. Total trust that he sees the forest, we sees the trees. That he is good and loving and he cares for us. But we have to remember that in this world, we will have trouble. Tim Keller, when he was speaking on this passage, he says he thinks that 50% of suffering that Christians go through are being surprised at what happens to them. I've been thinking about that for a handful of days. How much of suffering is us being surprised, going, what? I can't believe this happened to me. Keller says we shouldn't be surprised because of what Jesus has said that in this world we're going to have trouble. So what do we do about it? We go to him in faith. We go to the one who knows our pain, the one who took it on his shoulders, the one who has overcome the world, the one who promises that one day there will be no pain, no suffering, no tears, and no death. That is the promise for those who have chosen to follow Jesus. And let me encourage you, though, in the midst of storms, and some of you are in storms in your life today, as you go to him in faith, grieve your pain. Grieve your pain. Don't stuff it. Don't regret it. Don't try and justify it. Through positive thinking, just grieve it. As the psalm says, weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. This doesn't mean it'll be over quick but it means that there is deep healing with God. There is hope. There is a future joy. But it takes faith to believe that God is with us and will meet us in comfort and ultimately rescue us from our pain. 
But the reality is either we trust him in the storm or we are left at its mercy. So where is your faith today? It's a question I want to leave us with. Where is your faith today? Do you believe God is good? Do you believe God is for you? Are you ever able to trust him in this season of life? And I want to encourage you, go to him in faith. It will be messy. It won't be perfect. But that's okay because he's made it perfect through us in Jesus. And finally, you're not alone. I can't stress that enough. You are never alone. He has given us the Holy Spirit as a helper, as a guide, as a comforter, as an encourager to strengthen us and to be with us. God is for you. He is with you. He loves you. Let me close with this quickly. If you're in here and you go, it sounds great, but no way. The storm of my life is too great. I almost don't want to see the forest because the trees are so painful. I just want to say, I'm sorry, and we're with you. We want to walk alongside you. And I want to encourage you to just continue to ask God for faith. That's it. Ephesians says that it is a gift of God, that we have been saved through faith, and it is a gift of God. Ask God for more faith, nothing else. Continue to ask him for that gift. Some of you know the name Horatio G. Spafford. Um, Famous story. He was a Christian in Chicago, had a wife and four daughters. They decided to go to uh, vacation in Europe. They went ahead of him because he had some business. So they sailed out of New York and halfway um, from New York to England, two ships collided, went down, and his four daughters died. Um, His wife sent a telegram from England that just said, saved alone. Horatio jumps on a boat, heads over there. Halfway across the Atlantic, the captain takes everyone to the top of the ship and says, hey, this is where the the other ship went down. This is where his four daughters had died. And as the story tells us, Horatio went down into that boat. We don't know when he wrote it, but eventually he penned these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, he grieved. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. We're going to sing that song in a minute. I encourage you to sing along that it is well with my soul. And if your soul is not well in a hard season of life, I ask that you would sing along God, give me faith that I may one day sing it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Challenging. Just life, God, we just admit it. It can be really, really hard. But I'm so comforted that you know my pain and you know the pain of my friends here. You're not a God that sits on high. You're a God that entered into life. You entered into life and you took our sin and you took our pain on the cross. And you walk with us empathetic, loving, full of grace and mercy. 
gently moving with your kids as we move forward in faith in you. So I pray for a deeper faith in my own heart. I pray for deeper faith with my friends here. We thank you for that gift. We thank you for the hope that it brings. Lord, I believe in the gospel. I believe that you've established your kingdom, that you are a good, loving king who is for us. And so I pray for wisdom and perseverance and ultimately joy to push forward knowing that it is well with our soul because of what Jesus has done for us. So we give him all the glory, the honor, the praise this morning. We pray in his beautiful name. Amen.